All right, there we go. That looks uh, about right. All right. Hebrews 11, verse 8, it says this, By faith Abraham, when he was called, went out, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So here's uh, an act of faith that's exemplary. And in the case of Abraham, it's certainly one of the most significant ones in the Bible in the history of redemption. And that is that Abraham, who God appeared to him, Abraham was living in Ur of the Chaldees, which would be in the Mesopotamian Valley. And there, at that in the ancient world, was the most luscious and rich place to live. Okay, so he had no good reason to want to live. That's where his family was. He was um, in the best farmland, so to speak. And But nevertheless, God appeared to him and called him and determined to turn Abraham into a people. Into a special people that would be the people through whom God would bring salvation to the whole world. So Abraham went from Ur of the Chaldees. His father went from Ur of the Chaldees and ended up in Haran. And at Haran, God appeared to him. And that's where we get this incident that is being um, mentioned in Hebrews as a an example of what faith is like. So, uh, Dan, could you look up Genesis 12, 1 through 4 and read that for us? Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation... And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Amen. Amen. (laughs) So Abraham obeyed God. Now, in the Scriptures, you'll find that faith and obedience are often linked together. And, uh, for example, in Romans 1 and verse 5, it says Paul said that his ministry was had the intent of bringing about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. The Gospel is portrayed as something that's to be obeyed. Amen. And it talks about those who obey not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel isn't just an invitation. There is an invitation. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you see in the end of Revelation an invitation type language where it says, Let he who is thirsty come and drink without cost from the river of life. But it's more than that. And if if it's turned into only that, then it makes it appear to be optional. (laughs) If you happen to see fit, you know, you're allowed to come. But the Bible actually presents the gospel also as a command. For example, Paul in Acts 17 says that God has furnished proof to all men uh, through a man whom he raised from the dead. Therefore, he's declaring that all men everywhere should repent. Amen. 
All right, so there is a command, repent and believe the gospel. It says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So uh, there's an invitation because the offer is a gift, free gift of eternal life. But there's a command to repent. We're not allowed to just say, well, take it as optional. If we don't, we are being disobedient to God. Amen. Right? So Abraham believed God, and believing God, he obeyed, and he went out. Now, it says that he was to receive this for an inheritance. Um, did he? No. What, what, did Abraham, what did Abraham actually own land-wise in Canaan? Anybody know? Yes, you're right. A burial place for his wife. That's all he actually owned. A grave. So... Uh, someone might think, well, then Abraham obeyed God for nothing. But that's not true, is it? Because in the, in the Hebrew Jewish understanding, we have this idea of corporate solidarity. And that Abraham is one with all of his descendants, and his descendants are one with him. You see this argument earlier in Hebrews where it says that Levi paid tithes in Abraham. Levi is one with Abraham because he's his descendant. So the fact that Abraham's descendants ultimately inherited the land was proof that God kept his promise to Abraham. Because it says, in your seed, the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what's the ultimate seed of Abraham? Jesus. Good. You're well trained. There's some other passages um, we can look up. Could you... Um, uh, Brian, look up Genesis 13, 15 to 17, and Denise, Genesis 22, 18, and Linda, Deuteronomy 9, 5, and Kathy, Nehemiah 9. I'm going too fast. I see people writing. Genesis 22, 18, Deuteronomy 9, 5, then Kathy has Nehemiah 9, 7 and 8, and then Linda, uh, Isaiah 51, 2, and, okay, my name, uh, Brad? I got it. See, people think I'm good at names. I'm really not, but this Sunday school class kind of puts the pressure on. <laughs> okay, uh, Brad, Acts 7, 2 through 4. And Diane, Romans six seventeen. That's it for, for this verse. We already did it, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. So Genesis 13, 15 to 17, Brian. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your posterity forever. And I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then could your descendants also be counted. Arise, walk through the land, the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. So there's a promise there now, obviously, it specifically says, for his descendants. And then he says, I will give it to you. So you see, again, it helps you understand the Jewish background or the Hebrew background of scriptures. It's not necessarily how we would think as Americans. But if the descendants have the land at some future point in history, the fulfillment is true. And Yeah, and now it's interesting. It says, I will give it to them forever. But if you look at it, throughout most of history, they haven't had it, have they? No. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're trying to give some away at the moment. Um, but they had the land, they came into the land under Joshua. Alright. Uh, they had security under David and Solomon. That was the glory days. Out of all the history of Israel, they really only had a pretty short period of good times. Under David and Solomon was the, especially Solomon was the glory years of Israel. Where they had prosperity, where they had security, they had sovereignty in the land, and they were relatively right with God. Although there was always problems and sin. David had more problems because of his son rebelling and Absalom and all the problems he had and the battles with Saul and have you, uh, what have you. And then Solomon had prosperity, but he backslid. Okay. So then, after that, the kingdom splits under, um, was it Rehoboam? Rehoboam went to the north and Jeroboam was in the south. Was it that it? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember my history. And then uh, the, the northern kingdom went apostate immediately. They set up this idol worship in the north and the south, in, in Dan and in Bethel. So they combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. Uh, they didn't allow the people to go back to Jerusalem for the feast like they're supposed to do. And, and they were wiped out in 722 B.C. by the um, uh, Assyrians. <laughs> yeah, the Assyrians. And, and then uh, the southern kingdom had a couple of revivals. There's one under Hezekiah and one under Josiah. But other than that, almost the whole history was apostasy. They wouldn't listen to their prophets. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. Um, and so they were carried captive. And then when they came back under Nehemiah, it was kind of a small-scale thing. They didn't have you know a big prosperous setup. And then they were trodden underfoot, so to speak, by the descendants of Alexander the Great that divided up the, the uh, land and the Seleucids were there. And that's all of this was happening. They had a certain amount of independence under the Maccabees. But then in what year was it, 87 B.C.? that? Uh, what year did, uh, who was the Roman emperor that came in and took over? I'm forgetting my New Testament backgrounds. No, it was, it was in like 80 something BC, one of the Roman emperors. It's, not, it's just, it's slipping my mind now. What? No, it was, uh, I'm trying to think Pompeii or something, but it's, no, uh, Anyhow, a Roman emperor came in, defeated them, and set up a client kingdom. So they had to pay taxes to Rome. And that was the background to our New Testament. And Herod the Great ended up becoming one of these Roman client kings. And, and Herod rebuilt the temple. The temple wasn't much. after What Nehemiah and Ezra were able to do wasn't much. I mean, it was very... In fact, they cried when they saw it. <laughs> the people, the old men, <laughs> they cried. It just really wasn't much. But what happened was Herod the Great created a tremendous edifice, the second temple that was there when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Okay? And that was a glorious temple. But it had been created by under Roman auspices and by this Herod. And But that was destroyed in 70 A.D. And then in 135 A.D., Hadrian destroyed, just wiped them out, just scattered the Jews all over the land and, and just totally under this barcode Sheba revolt. Now, since then, and until 1948, they weren't in the land. Okay? 
And even now, back in the land, they're still not right with God. Uh, they're not serving Messiah for the most part, just a, just a remnant. They don't have all the land that was promised. And so how can it say, now the reason I give you this little history lesson is that it says, I will give this to your descendants forever. And they've hardly ever had it. So how is that going to be fulfilled? Right. Well, there's more Jews going back to Israel, Aliyah, right now than there ever has been. They're being gathered back into that area. And in the end times, uh, when God sets up his uh, kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the ultimate uh, fulfillment is going to be under Messiah. The seed of Abraham is Messiah. Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, Hebrews 11.8. We're studying about how Abraham was given his promise by faith. Look at chapter 11, verse 39. Skip ahead a little bit because this is what everything is guiding for us. Um, in this whole section, we're going to be on faith. And I think this helps. This will help us understand. Yeah, good point. Yep. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what's promised. Wow. Because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So ultimately, all these promises are, according to the author of Hebrews, really looking forward to this end time when all of the redeemed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who are gathered into all the nations are going to be gathered under Messiah. In, in the kingdom. In the kingdom. Right. So well, it's, it always does. It's been, it's been volatile throughout history. And it's very interesting. I think it's part of proof of the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that Jerusalem is such a significant place in world history. Because if, you, if you've ever been there, I mean, you know, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, so I understand what land is. My dad had some of the finest land in America, in northwest Iowa. Um, and so I understand the value of land and what a good land looks like. And when I went to Israel, I didn't see that. There's a little bit in the Jezreel Valley and around uh, Galilee. There's, and they make the best out of not much. But Jerusalem itself is not prime real estate. It's pretty well worthless. It would be if God hadn't made it worth something. They didn't even have a good water source. Anybody else been to Israel? What Did you, did you notice that? Rocks. 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 Did you figure out why they stoned people? <laughs> exactly. There are rocks everywhere, and they're all about just the right size you can grab and throw. And if you see to this day on the news when they're having a riot, what are the kids doing? They're throwing rocks. It's been going on for 2,000 or 3,000 years. More than that, 6,000 years. And you look at that and say, how, does, how could this place be the... Uh, a cup of trembling for all the nations. How could this place be disputed by the whole world as far as who's going to have it? And the only reason it has value to start with is because God promised it to Abraham and his descendants. Amen. And, and to David. And, and that's why it's significant. And the fact that it is playing out in history and that the Jews are coming back to the land, I don't know why everybody doesn't repent and become a Christian. Amen. Why, don't, why doesn't everybody believe the Bible? It's just because there's a, a, a blindness that Satan put on them. 
Yeah. Well, we're like the Abraham. He has an inheritance. We have an inheritance that we haven't received yet, the same as uh, Abraham. It's in heaven. It's secured. It's a done deal. And so by faith, like Abraham, our inheritance is secured. That's why I'm sad when people won't preach the gospel with confidence. Like this great supposedly preacher in Houston. I don't know what his name is. He says, I won't, con huh? Joe, I won't condemn people. There's no way I'll condemn people. But the Word of God says, He that believeth not is condemned already. He that believeth isn't condemned. The Word of God. Preach the Word of God. They don't want to offend anybody. The Gospel, like Pastor said last week, is offensive. He that believeth not is condemned already. He that, John 3.16, they will perish. Perish where? In hell. They call that love? Not telling people what their end will be? Yeah. It's all about money. It's like knowing there's a, knowing this is, it's like being on a train and you know the bridge is out, but you, yeah. up ahead, but you don't tell anybody. You just stay on the train. All right. Yeah, try and then we'll get back to our verses. Israel ever had all their promised land? No. Yeah, that, that's interesting. No, not even under Solomon, because it goes from the Euphrates, right? To the Nile. They've never had it. I, they've never had it. And I'll tell you what, I don't believe they're going to have it until Messiah comes back and gives it to them. Amen. All right. Now, it's interesting. When I was in Israel in 1983, um, Matanya Segal, our, our tour guide, very interesting Jewish guy. But we were, we were looking at the Eastern Gate. And if you go on the Mount of Olives and you look down through the Kidron Valley, there's graves, 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 graves. You've never seen so many graves. And rich people are buried there because they thought they'd be closer for the resurrection if they could be on the Mount of Olives or, the, or by the Eastern Gate. Well, then, at some point when the, uh, the Turks or somebody owned it, they buried all these people. They closed the Eastern Gate and put people's graves there because they know the Jews won't move a grave or touch a dead body because they didn't want them to open the Eastern Gate because they realized that the promise of Messiah was going to come through the Eastern Gate. But even the Jews themselves say, oh, no, don't worry, Messiah won't have any problem with that when he comes. But the sad thing is that they don't really know Messiah. Let's go back to our passages here. Genesis 22:18, uh, Denise. In your seed will the nations of the earth, sorry, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Amen. you have obeyed my voice. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What's that? Abraham. That was Abraham. So, in, uh, so the seed of Abraham would bless the nations. How is that happening? Jesus is the seed of Abraham, and, there, and people from all nations are coming to salvation by putting their faith in Christ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Matthew is purposely telling us that this is the Abrahamic promise in the Great Commission. Larry. Yes, there's an already not yet uh, very much so. And uh, already the nations are being blessed in Messiah in, in as much as representatives from all the various, the word there, ethnic, probably means tribes, more so than geopolitical entities. So out of all the different tribes of people that exist on the face of the earth, God is saving a remnant uh, so that there will be representatives ultimately worshiping God in this great chorus in heaven from all the different nations. And already that's happening. But the not yet is, I believe that Messiah will literally come back and sit on the throne of David 
and rule. Okay? And that there'll be a greater fulfillment in the future. So, but the seeds of the future, uh, uh, of future prophecy are in history. And so there's an already not yet. And I totally agree with that concept. Ryan and I preach on that a lot. And we, we believe that that's, that's how you can understand the kingdom of God in a sense. I, I don't believe in kingdom now, but I do believe people are entering the kingdom. Alright, it's not a physical place. It's somebody, somebody was, I was debating with somebody about that and, they were going to buy something for the kingdom of God. And I said, no, the kingdom of God doesn't own property. I said, if you want to get in your car and drive to the kingdom, the only way you're going to arrive there is if you get in a head-on collision. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll go to the kingdom of God. So um, uh, the kingdom is the rule of Christ as he rules over people that are submitted to his lordship. But the physical kingdom comes when he returns as the physical king. Right? And so people in kingdom now say, we're going to take dominion over the earth and we're going to make everybody obey Christ, whether they want to be Christian or not. Uh, and that's some, the Catholic Church tried to do that for centuries. They had the crusades. They were going to take places for the kingdom. You know, Forget it. All right, uh, Linda, Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart that you go to, the, to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. So they were going to possess the land, not because they were better than everybody, but, be, but God had made promises to their fathers and, these, and the people were wicked. Now remember, when God gave the promise to Abraham, he said that his descendants would be, kept, would be serving for 400 years somewhere else in Egypt. Why, why would the 400 year delay, do you remember? Linda? The Amalekites. <laughs> Yeah, in other words, they, the people weren't wicked enough yet to warrant God driving them out. So He gave them 400 years to get more wicked, and then so then so then at the, that later date, they they were uh, driven out. Oh, yeah, they got more wicked. It's easy to let people get wicked; just leave them alone. <laughs> That's the sin nature, isn't it? Isaiah 51 and verse two, uh, Kathy. No, you were Nehemiah 9, 7, and 8. Yeah, that's right. I got ahead of myself. <laughs> See, I give you the easy verse, don't I? Amen. Now that was see that Nehemiah cited that history at a time when they were coming back into the land, and they realized many, many hundreds of years later that the only reason they were coming back into the land was that God had made a promise to the patriarchs, and they were saying to God, You're, "You've been faithful." And it, Nehemiah nine is a marvelous chapter about prayer and about how we should understand history. In Nehemiah nine, he cites all of the wickedness that they, that they had done taking responsibility for the sins of his own ancestors. And Nehemiah says, but God, you were merciful and you forgave us and you brought us back. Sometime it would be a very good chapter to study Nehemiah 9. 
Um, yes. Oh, it's still working. I just can't see it. Uh, um, okay, uh, Linda, Isaiah 51, too. When he was but one, is that what it says? He was just one, and God turned him into an entire nation of people. You know, if you think about those groups that Kathy was reading about there, where are they? Are there any parasites? I mean, there are, but not not those kind. (laughs) Whatever they were, Hittites or uh, Amalekites or whatever, they they don't exist. But But are there Jews? Do they still know who they are? Very much so. And are they really descendants of Abraham? Yes, they are. Absolutely. So, again, the Bible's proven true. Okay, um, Brad, that is a miracle. Not only are there still Jews, and they still are descendants of Abraham, and they still have this self-consciousness of their identity. Passover helps keep that. Even the most secular Jews, for the most part, still do Passover. Is that right? Amen. You're Jewish, right, Brian? Brian is, is Jewish, so you, you would understand this. But isn't that how they kind of keep their identity, is these feasts and yeah, tradition. the tradition and the Passover? Because the Passover contains the story of their identity. And for century after century after century, they've kept that, and they still do to this day. And God ordained that it would be that way. Now, the sad thing is that, for the most part, they don't come to the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. But I, I think that's true, but I'm not an expert about that. But I, they do still have a concern for that. I think they, they, the, the, the name Cohen means what? Priest, I think? Isn't Cohen a line of priest? Cohen. Cohen, yes. Oh, wow. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham, who was in Mesopotamia, for he dwelt in Sharan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred, and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of Chaldeans, who dwelt in Sharan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land. Yes, uh, Acts 7 is Stephen's apology or speech to these Jewish people that caused him to be martyred. So that passage that Brad just read was Stephen explaining to his Jewish friends what Messianic salvation is all about. And when Stephen got up to preach, he starts with Abraham. And he traces their history right up to Messiah. And But they got mad at Stephen because Stephen says, your fathers used to murder the prophets when, when God sent them, and now God sent his own son, and, they, and, and you killed him as well. And they, they, they got mad, and they put their hands on their ears, and they got stones, and they killed Stephen. And they laid the ones that were thrown in stones laid their coats at the feet of a certain Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. Interesting. But the Jewish understanding of history is interesting. If you look at sermons in the book of Acts that were preached by Jews to Jews, every one of them has history in it. They go back to Abraham, to David, and that's how they understand. That's how they speak. That's how they 
come to see the works of God through their history. Amen. And that's why it's important that, that all of the sermons had the resurrection of Christ. What Peter, Stephen, Paul, other preachers in Acts wanted the, their Jewish brothers to see is that the resurrection of Jesus was the greatest thing that ever happened in Jewish history. Of all the great events, that was the greatest of them. And if you don't get that one, uh, conservative ones are. But what you need to know is that most Jews, even in Israel, are secular, they're agnostic, or they're just nominally religious, if at all. And part of the Jewish lament, and that's certainly the one of the greatest uh, contributions to world literature that the Jews have given is the lament, and they still lament. Amen. My neighbor, my neighbor uh, uh, Max, that I, I used to talk with all the time, had all kinds of laments that he could tell you about. Was there any time something go bad, like you know the deer ate his tomatoes, he'd have a lament. Did he pull out? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's so bad. <laughs> Life is so bad. <laughs> and the deer ate tomatoes. So, and he, then they quote these laments. And I think part of the thing that's it's so tragic is that one of the things that the Jewish people have that they've never lost is a sense of idealism. They have a really high view of how life is supposed to be. They do, those, especially those who believe in God. They believe that life should be better, that people shouldn't suffer, that there shouldn't be all this evil in the world. If you look at people like Rabbi Kushner, why bad things happen to good people, you see that part of it. And it's so tragic when you don't know Messiah because then you don't really have an answer. So they go out and do things and, and, and start charities and make contributions to, world, to the United Nations. or they, they so badly want the world to be better. Because they feel like it really should be. But they, but it just doesn't. And it can't be without Messiah. Now, the conservative Jews believe that literal Messiah will come. And that when he does come, he's going to right all these problems in the world. What Messiah does is fix the world. Yes? In the Passover Seder, and, and Carl does it here, <coughs> that there's usually an empty place setting. Messiah. Right. At one point, the Seder, the door is open. So if Messiah were to come during the Seder, he'd have his place. And then there's the Apikonim, which is the uh, matzah, which represents one of the matzahs, which represents the Messiah. Okay, so the idea of Messiah is in the Passover. By the way, if you haven't been to one of those, we do it every year in the spring. Carl is excellent. It is a fantastic teaching thing. I learned more about what Passover is all about by going to that than you ever could just reading a book about it. Right. And so there is this yet empty spot. But you know what's the most tragic thing about this? Because I was in Israel listening. Our guide was conservative. He believed in a literal coming of Messiah. Is that if you listen to their definition of Messiah and what he's going to do, they're going to be deluded by Antichrist. In my opinion. Amen. Because they believe in a Messiah who's going to make world peace. And make everything right. And, and the Bible predicts this in, in uh, Daniel. It says he'll make a covenant with the many. And that'll start Daniel's 70th week. And why would they believe that? 
Because they're, all of these centuries, they're waiting for world peace. And where's Messiah? Where, when are we going to get this world peace? Yes. Really? Yeah, but they're bringing. Aren't they bringing? Yes. Yeah. Well, that. But then it depends on what version. The, the Orthodox would feel differently about that. Okay. Well, anyhow. Uh, so. It's not happening. So let's try another way. But but can you imagine if you're looking for someone who's going to solve the world's problems and create world peace, and here comes a man who can do signs and wonders. So, so strong of ones that deceiveth possible the elect, and that he's able to get everybody on one page, so to speak, worldwide. It would be a grand delusion. And then, well, you, most of you know this, but in case you don't know Bible prophecy, we believe in literal Bible prophecy here. It says that he'll make a covenant with the many. But what, that's the start of Daniel's 70th week. What happens in the middle of it? He breaks it. How does he break it? Yeah, the abomination that brings desolation. He sets himself up in the temple. I personally think the one who's going to rebuild the temple is Antichrist. That Herod is sort of a foreshadowing of Antichrist. Herod built a temple, but then he wasn't really no friend of the Jews. He, he, he wanted to say he was. His wife was Jewish. He loved very much, but he had to kill her because he was paranoid. <laughs> he was a wicked man. But uh, I think that, that that'll be part of the deception. Here, you can have your temple, but then three and a half years into it, he sets himself up as an idol. Yes? I, I, had, I hadn't heard that one, but I, wouldn't, I don't know. They do want to bring back the sacrifices. I mean, that's going on right so There are some that want to, yeah, they, there's people preparing to do that that would like to do that. Uh, well, let's get Diane's verse. She's been sitting there with her finger wearing out. Uh, Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine through which you were delivered. There was that I think I was talking about earlier, that the Gospels to be obeyed. It says, it says in Romans six seventeen. thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of teaching or doctrine that was given to you. So notice there that the how did they get free from being slaves to sin? The gospel, right? So Paul's talking about the gospel. There's no other way to be saved but through the gospel. So notice what Paul says in Romans six seventeen about the gospel. First of all, that it is doctrine. All right, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you've been. Uh, Taught. Now, <clears throat> nothing bugs me more than when people start bad-mouthing doctrine. Amen. And I hear it all the time. Well, people don't want to hear doctrine. I read, the, I read the Purpose Driven Life three times through in order to prepare for the book that I, I've been writing. And the, the last time through, I took notes on every page. with, with, sim, with a, I had a code so that I could look back and find different things. And I made these notations. So I, I read all 300 and whatever pages of that thing. And I found every time the word doctrine showed up. And there were four times. And every time it was given a bad slam. Okay, doctrine's a bad thing. You don't, we don't need doctrine. Have you heard that before? Yes. No, people don't want doctrine. 
Now, I wonder what they're going to say to Paul. <laughs> okay? Without doctrine, you can't be saved. Now, let me say that in, in the right context so I'm not misunderstood. Paul said that you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. See, the word doctrine comes from the Greek word um, didaskal, see, didaskalos. Is that how it goes? Uh, from the word, uh, with this word didache, which means teaching. Okay? And it can be translated teaching or doctrine. They're synonymous. It's a translation of the same Greek word. Now, the King James often uses the term doctrine. I like that word. I wish it was in the New American Standard more often. And so somebody says, well, we don't want doctrine. Well, then how are you going to be saved? The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin is a doctrine. That Jesus preexisted as God is a doctrine. That Jesus lived a sinless life is a doctrine. That he, the blood atonement is a doctrine. The resurrection from the dead is a doctrine. So which doctrine are you going to throw out? All right, that's my old sermon. Linda and then Mike. I remember in that book, it says, you know, God's not going to ask you what your doctrine is, but what you did with Jesus. Exactly. You know, Linda, that's exactly what it says. God won't ask you about your doctrine. He'll ask you about what you did with Jesus. And I read that and said, well, that's just just like, you know. Jesus yeah, to, to, to know who Jesus is, you got to know doctrine. Right? So it's, just, it's, it's a nonsensical statement because the, 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 I have this in my book, by the way. I have a whole, I took that statement and I have like three pages of my book just unpacking it. See, see, what's wrong with that? Because the Mormons have Jesus. Alright? And if you don't have doctrine, you can't tell the difference between a Christian Jesus and a Mormon Jesus. Amen. And so is God not going to ask the Mormons on the day of judgment about their doctrine? Well, I think he, I think he very well will. Amen. And, and if God just said, well, what do you do with Jesus? And the Mormons say, well, we like Jesus. He's great. He's wonderful. Even the demons. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, oh, don't get me going. Mike, go ahead. There's a big misunderstanding as to what doctrine is supposed to do Don't know 
that you're in a war, you're going to get killed. And that's why that's why Paul says, even if even if an angel comes with some other gospel, let him be cursed. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, Mike. Absolutely, and that, and that is the 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 whole problem right now. And they were talking about it on Jan's show yesterday. I, I don't know if you heard. I, call, I called in. I couldn't resist. I was going to the post office, and I had my radio on, and I had to drive clear out somewhere because our post office got rebuilt, and it's going to open actually tomorrow. But anyhow, I, and I'm listening to Brian Flynn and his Mike Oppenheimer, and I'm going, oh, this is good. And so I called in, and I got in on it too. <laughs> so so we, that's exactly what they were talking about. Now, here, the next CIC article is going to be on the church growth movement. It, here's the problem. If the, if the way we're going to get bigger is to be more popular with the world, we've already betrayed the gospel. Amen. That's, that's what Mike is saying. Amen. Is, is that it's not possible. I don't care how you dress it up and couch it and you do all, everything you want with the gospel. Massage it, delete parts out of it, make it look pretty. If it really is the gospel, the world will hate it. Amen. Now, you might say, and it's a very legitimate question, how can God use something that the world innately hates? It says that the Jews look for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, right? Uh, which is foolishness to the Greek and an offense to the Jews. All right? Now, so you got a, a message that you know, so that's, to me, this helps evangelize. When we go out here Tuesday night, we're going to preach the gospel right out here Tuesday night. Amen. We know right away that if we preach it accurately, it's going to offend people. Amen. Okay. So I'm glad somebody offended me. Oh, I like what Jan Markell said because they were having this thing uh, at this church that was out reaching out to these Israeli vendors. And they were, and somebody said, our rule is you can't tell any of these Israeli vendors about Jesus. Because we don't want to offend them. So Jan Markell, God bless her, went to the pastor of the church and just laid into him. She says, I'm glad somebody offended me and I'm glad somebody offended my father. Amen. Somebody was, had enough love for us to tell us about Jesus Christ. And we were offended until we were converted. And, and so they actually, they felt ashamed and they, because Jan got them to change their policy, uh, after she went and talked to them. Okay. Now here's, here's, here's the irony of the gospel. Even though it's going to offend everybody if it's accurately preached, God will use it so- sovereignly and supernaturally to save those who are going to be saved. And I was offended. I, I thought I was a good religious person until somebody really preached the gospel to me. Amen. That's and, and it's an amazing thing. I grew up in church and I thought I was fine and I was okay and that I believed in God. And when real Christians preached the real gospel, I got hostile and I started blaspheming. I got so angry. Why? Because they were shaking up my comfort, my feathered nest. They were telling me, no, you're not right with God. God's angry with you and you're going to go to hell. What? I'm a good person. I went to Sunday school. I got a gold pin for not missing Sunday school for 12 months in a row. No, you're going to go to hell. And then I was converted. So, yes, Brian. Tell me, a couple months ago, did 
Oh, yeah, somebody somebody told me that. Was that you? Yeah, Rich, Richard told me that story. They, they were, a certain church was having an outreach to the community, and they handed them out all around the community, and then to make everybody feel safe, it says, no gospel will be preached. You're, you're perfectly safe. No, you're perfectly in danger. Amen. Right? You're perfectly in danger of staying lost. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. And, and, and the antidote to this whole thing, whether it's church growth movement, whether it's a seeker sensitive or the whatever you want to call it, is for the true Christians to understand the gospel themselves. Amen. And to understand what Mike was saying, which was so clear in the Bible, don't be surprised that the world hates you, Jesus said. The world hated me. And and don't expect that everybody's going to be your friend. Don't expect that you're going to have this ecumenical unity. Don't expect that everybody in the neighborhood is going to be glad that we're here because we're such wonderful people. Uh, that's not what it says. And if you get that out of your mind, then you won't even be tempted. Okay. Now, we're, we started on this conversation because Diane read a verse. It's all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> what did you do? It says you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, or did I was delivered to you? Now let's just unpack that. We started out with the word doctrine. Doctrine is innate to the gospel. If somebody says, "Well, we don't want to have any doctrine in our church," well, what are they going to do? Just have fun and games? You know, I remember in '86 when we had Dave Hunt here, and people were mad about that. And and some of my friends said, "Well, you're dividing the church because we shouldn't be emphasizing doctrine." And I said, when you are in your pulpit and your mouth is going and words are coming out, what are you doing? I'm teaching. And I said, well, the word teaching and the word doctrine are synonymous. They're a translation of the same Greek word. So what you're saying is, we don't want any biblical doctrine. We just want our latest idea to come out. Is a doctrine. <laughs> we have a doctrine that we don't believe in doctrine. That's like the postmodern. We don't. We know for sure that nobody knows for sure. Yeah, it's po it's possible for a church to be big and be faithful. It is possible, but what's that's not how you judge, and that's not how Jesus judged. The two churches in Revelation that were fully commended and not rebuked for anything were both small. Philadelphia and Smyrna. And they couldn't have been having sustained church growth because they'd been around since the time of the apostles. And they were still small in 95 A.D. They're small and hated and persecuted and not popular in their community. Didn't 5,012 get fed and 5,000 left? You were talking about getting oh, fed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah John 6. Yeah, five, five, he had a good point. 5,012 were fed and 5,000 left. Remember, there was only 12 left and one of them had a demon? Yeah. Uh, Kathy, Jesus had a little church. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that what they see? Yeah, I remember saying that. Yeah. What was he saying? And he was using verses that talk about the traditions of men that we passed down to you. And I just think Catholics 
They think that's their catechism, not what Paul was teaching. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go back, Kathy, to a prior discussion about what's the authoritative word of God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna finish that verse. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, or however it says that. Notice, obeyed from the heart. The gospel isn't a nice idea. The gospel isn't an invitation to better living. The gospel is a declaration of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Who he is, what he did, and why we need him. Amen. And knowing, and, and I've explained this. I even preached this out on the street. Some of you probably heard me the last time I was out there. Uh, and Dan goes around, and uh, some of you go around and want to want to do the same thing. Why is it? Why is it so narrow? Well, just think about it. If the gospel's true, if God really did make this sacrifice, send His own Son to be cruelly mocked and hated and ridiculed by sinners that he had the power to wipe out right on the spot, send legions of angels if he wanted to, to be beaten, spat upon, ridiculed, tortured, hung on a cross, all the while, and then have them say, well, if you're God, come off the cross, then we'll believe you. Which he could very well have done, and then condemned them for sure to hell, because nobody would have died for their sins. And then raised from the dead. If this is true and God did that, how can we, uh, why wouldn't God be offended if people spurn it? Amen. Why wouldn't God be angry? Why wouldn't God say, you must obey me? Because here's what I did, what I asked you, what is God asking us to do? It says in Romans 10, don't say who's going to go up to heaven and get it and bring it down here. Who's going to go down to the bottom of the sea? Romans 10. But the word is very near you, the word of faith that we're teaching. Now that doesn't mean claiming a Cadillac down. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, no, it's, it's the gospel. And so, the gospel isn't saying to people, you must do some superhero thing. It's simply asking people to believe what's true and to give God the appropriate response that He, that, that he deserves, Amen. which is our obedience and our Amen. worship, to trust Him. And it's, it's a free gift. Amen. So we've got to get it.